Well, good morning. I'm glad that you fathers are here this morning. It is good that we honor our dads. It is good that we respect our fathers. God has called us not only to do that, but I think sometimes we forget that that's the framework with which God helps us to understand how he relates to us. I think sometimes we miss in the Lord's Prayer how precious uh, these, these two concrete images are our Father. So we come to God on the basis of his fatherhood over us. And yet he's still in heaven reigning as king and sovereign. What hope, what glory. We go to the one who is in heaven and loves us as dear children, cares for us because he is our father. But unlike our earthly fathers who are helpless to keep cancers and dangers away, are helpless to curb our heart's desires and pull us towards the beloved son, our father in heaven is able to do all of these things. And so we come to him as we pray, our father in heaven. Uh, What a glorious thing. And then as uh, God gives many the privilege of being fathers, we would echo both that protection and powerful care, that love, that affection, that images God's fatherhood for his people. If you're uh, ready with your Bibles, open them to Ezekiel chapter 34. That meditation, um, God's care for us, being a template by which we should be thinking about our care for those we lead is where I land with Ezekiel 34. So on Mother's Day, I uh, let you all know that one of, I thought, my duties was to continue our our chapters in Philippians and walk through that. But on Father's Day, because we're between series, I think it would be good for us to look at God as our shepherd as a template, not only that we would find much hope and comfort in that, but also that we would recognize how best to shepherd and care for those we lead. So, fathers, I'm looking at you. As we consider the fatherhood, the care, the shepherding work of our God in heaven, that we would hear very clearly uh, in detail and with thoughtfulness how we should also care for those under our leadership. So I'm going to read this whole chapter throughout the course of this sermon. Uh, What I would like to do is read through verse 16 initially. So let me just frame it out for you. In verses 1 through 10, Ezekiel is going to go after human shepherds. And then in verses 11 through 16, he's going to contrast that very clearly with God who is our shepherd. So that you have this indictment against the failure of human shepherds who God has appointed over his people to be his under-shepherds. They have failed miserably. And God says, so I'm going to take over. And I'm going to shepherd you, my people Israel. And so in context, Israel has been taken captive in multiple deportations Ezekiel probably taken near the deportation uh, about, what, 14 years before the final deportation. So right around 600, the final deportation you see with Jerusalem, when Jerusalem finally gets destroyed, is in 586. So somewhere in the, in the 590s, maybe 600s, Ezekiel's taken captive. He's now living by the rivers near the city of Babylon. 
He's prophesying from there. In chapter 33, he prophesies about the destruction of Jerusalem. And so now he's comforting God's people whose nation has fallen. And over the last 150 years, the northern tribes, the southern tribes, the whole nation now is, is rubble. The only people left in the nation of Israel are the poorest of the poor, um, the uneducated, the outcasts, and in, in a patriotic sense, Israel is a broken, hollowed-out shell. We might miss this because we don't blend church and nation so much as Israel should have, that they view their national identity as also their religious identity. And so common in that culture, they would see gods as being somewhat shown powerless in the defeat of the nations. So it could be that Israel's lost hope in God. God looks like he is powerless to save. Their national identity is, is fractured and humbled. And Ezekiel writes to give comfort and to call them to hope in God. And as he does that, he says, look at who our shepherd is. And he also lays blame at the failure of human leadership. So let me read in verses 1 and following how the Lord comforts our souls. Verse 1, the word of the Lord came to me, son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, even to the shepherds, thus says the Lord God, ah, shepherds of Israel who have been feeding yourselves, should not shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat, you clothe yourselves with the wool, you slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. The weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed, the injured you have not bound up, the strayed you have not brought back, the lost you have not sought. And with force and harshness you ruled them. Here's the result. They're scattered because there was no shepherd. And they became food for all the wild beasts. My sheep were scattered they were wandering all over the mountains and on every hill. My sheep were scattered all over the face of the earth with none to search or seek for them. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. As I live, declares the Lord, surely because my sheep have become prey and my sheep have become food for all the wild beasts. Since there was no shepherd and because my shepherds have not searched for my sheep, but the shepherds have fed themselves, and have not fed my sheep, therefore you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, behold, I am against the shepherds. I'll require my sheep at their hands and put a stop to their feeding the sheep. No longer shall the shepherds feed themselves. I will rescue my sheep from their mouths that they may not be food for them. You want to know how strong God was against those shepherds? Josiah had three sons. His first son reigned instead of him for about three months before he was taken captive, deported to Babylon, and held captive there for his whole life. Second brother started to rule, made a treaty with Egypt. Babylon captured him, slaughtered his family in front of him, and gouged out his eyes. The last thing he saw was his family murdered. Babylon was merely God's servant. God was against the shepherds of Israel. Verse 11. Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I, I myself, will search for my sheep 
I will seek them out as a shepherd seeks out his flock. When he is among his sheep that have been scattered, so I will seek out my sheep and I will rescue them from all places where they have been scattered on a day of clouds and thick darkness. And I will bring them out from the peoples and gather them from the countries and I will bring them into their own land and I will feed them on the mountains of Israel by the ravines and in all the inhabited places of the country. I will feed them with good pasture and on the mountain heights of Israel shall be their grazing land. There they shall lie down in good grazing land, and on rich pasture they shall feed on the mountains of Israel. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep, and I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord God. I will seek the lost. I will bring back the stray. I will bind up the injured. I will strengthen the weak, and the fat and the strong I will destroy. I will feed them with justice. When we look at this text, God lays out both indictments against bad shepherds, but he contrasts that with his sweet shepherding of his people. In fact, if you were to look in in verse 4 and contrast it with verse 16, they run in reverse. In verse 16, the weak and the sick have not been cared for or healed. The injured have not been bound up. The stray has not been fetched or sought after. The lost has not been sought. Then you go to verse 16. The lost are sought. The stray has been pursued. The injured has been bound up. And the sick and the weak are strengthened. They read in reverse if you read verse 14 and verse 16. I would just suggest to you six ways in which I think our God teaches us about his good shepherding. Initially, the Lord pursues his sheep. Look in verse 11 with me. Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I myself will search for my sheep, and I will seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among his sheep that have been scattered, so I will seek out my sheep, and I will rescue them from all places. Isn't God's heart amazing? Here's God speaking to Israel, God on high, the guy who spoke the world into existence, and he is talking to Israel, scattered to Egypt, to Babylon. They're refugees, foreigners in nations that don't speak their language, and God is calling on them to understand who his heart is, and it is one that seeks and pursues the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Scattered like a flock, wolves coming, running into the forests of the world, endangered by all the predators, and God says, I will go find you. I will pursue you, I will seek you out, I will hunt you down, because I want you to be part of my flock, shepherded by me. I will search them, I will seek for them. Verse 12, again, I will seek them, I will rescue them from these places. I will bring them out from the peoples, and I will gather them. God is a pursuing, searching, seeking God. It is no wonder then that when Jesus comes in Luke 19, he says, I came to seek and save the lost. And sometimes we just use lost, which is code for unbeliever. We lose sight of what this means. It means someone who's strayed from their maker and the shepherd of their soul. Someone who is apart from God, alien to his grace, and a foreigner, a lamb in the world, ready to be prey. victim waiting to be ruined by the world. And our Savior comes and says, I, 
That's my job is to seek that I might save the lost sheep. In Matthew 18, he says, what do you think if a man has a hundred sheep and one of them goes astray? Does he not leave the 99 on the mountain and go and search out that one who went astray? And if he finds it truly, I say to you, he rejoices over it more than for the 99 that never went astray. Our God pursues sheep. Isn't that a wonderful and encouraging thought? Doesn't your heart resonate with a song that says, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love? Aren't you thankful that God pursues you if you give in to that tendency to wander? Don't you feel his shepherding care when tempted by sin through the grace and the ministry of the Holy Spirit? He brings you back through conviction, through the kind rebuke of a friend, through the ministry of the word of God as you read your Bible. Aren't you thankful God seeks you? Because the Bible says very clearly, there is none who seeks God. You are here today because our God has sought you. Not only is God one who pursues his sheep, he is one who is present with his sheep. Look in verse 12. As a shepherd seeks out his flock, notice what? When he's among them. I don't know if it's a generational thing, so forgive me if you're older and you feel like this hits you between the eyes, but I grew up among pastors who said they shouldn't be friends with their church family. They were kind of men apart. It sounds like the kings of Israel were also men set apart, not because they were sanctified to God, but because they were men who were too good for the sheep that they were given to. They were men apart from the normal person of Israel. They were men separated by wealth and prosperity because they were too good to waste their time among the sheep. Now think about the audacity of a human king thinking he's too good for the sheep when the Son of God is named Emmanuel, God with us. He says, like a shepherd who's among his sheep. Shepherds were the outcasts of society. They were considered kind of the dirty, the grungy, the unstable. They were often considered unclean because they were not able to participate in all of the normal ritual life of Israel and cleansing because they're just constantly, maybe we would think of them as like rednecks, hillbillies, because they, they didn't live in civilized society. They lived kind of campy. They lived with sheep. They smelled like sheep. They slept in pastures. It wasn't, it wasn't the life of the prosperous. How sweet the condescension of God that he dwells with us. Again and again, we are promised in the New Testament that the Lord is near. We are promised in the Old Testament that we should draw close to him. We should turn to him because he's near. The Lord honors those who seek him, Hebrews reminds us. Because God dwells with his sheep. Look at the end of how this passage concludes. This kind of hope-giving ointment for the hurting soul of the refugee in Babylon. Verse 31, and you are my sheep. Human sheep of my pasture, 
I am your God, declares the Lord God. What a sweet promise. What a sweet, identific- sweet identification. Just thinking a, a few weeks ago when I had the privilege of officiating the ceremony at Easton and Danny's wedding. Most of you may not know this, but it was very sweet. I declared them husband of husband and wife. Before I could say, you may kiss your bride, they're kissing. <laughs> and then I'm, I'm trying to announce them as the new Mr. and Mrs. Easton McMurray. They're already down the aisle before I can start to introduce them. They were so excited to be married together, to be a husband and wife, to, to own each other in this sweet relationship that God has given us in marriage. And here's God with that same type of enthusiastic joy, delighting over his people. I am your shepherd. You are my people. And who are they? Is this a glorious, beautiful, powerful nation which any God would say, that's my people. No, they're broken people. Fragmented across the nations. Struggling with syncretistic idolatry where they worship all these false gods and the God of Israel too. And God says, no, you're my people. Declares his ownership over them and glories in it in this text. This is not about how proud God is of them. It is that God is going to make them into a nation that displays and shouts his glory because he's a God who shepherds the broken, the wandering, the rebellious sheep. It's a God that displays, or it's a nation that displays God's faithfulness, his healing power, his resolve to do good to people who aren't good, That's what the nation shows, and so he glories over them because of what he will do among them. Nevertheless, he is a God who dwells with people who are smelly, sinful, wandering, rebellious, wandering, sheepy people. The Lord also provides for his sheep. And I think we miss the beauty and the power of this context, but again, remember they're refugees. So as you look in verse 13, I will bring them out from the peoples and gather them from the countries and I will bring them into their own land. I will feed them on the mountains of Israel by the ravines and all the inhabited places of the country. I will feed them with good pasture on the mountain heights of Israel shall be their grazing land. And there they shall lie down in good grazing land and on rich pasture they shall feed on the mountains of Israel. God provides for a sheep, and I, I just want to like slow that down for you. He's pressing home a place. I will gather you from the peoples. I will gather you from Babylon and Egypt. I will gather you from all of North Africa. I will gather you from what we would now say is Turkey. I will gather you from these people, and I will bring you to Israel, which is currently a very deserty place. God describes it as verdant, flowing with prosperity, a place that will feed and nurture the flock of Israel. 
So God is not only promising to bring them into a land, he's promising that the land, when they're brought back, will be renovated and made new. I want you to continue down and look at verse 14. You see, I'll feed you on good pasture. But in verse 23, you see that that's connected with this person. Let me back up and give you verse 25 and, or excuse me, 23 through verse 25 in terms of context. I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them. Now, his servant David is probably not speaking to the person David himself as much as the Davidic line. That is, the promise made to David is that one from his line would always be on his throne. So it's a promise to David of a Davidic son that will be king. You recall what happened to the last king of Israel on the throne? He watched his family get slaughtered and had his eyes gouged out. His older brother was enslaved. I think it's 2 Chronicles ends with the birth of that oldest son's son. And it says Chronicles ends this kind of like wimpy final note of the Davidic dynasty. There's a ray of hope in darkness. The line continued. Verse 23, that son of David will be the shepherd over Israel. He shall feed them, and he shall feed them, and be their shepherd. And I, Yahweh, will be their God, and my servant David shall be prince among them. I am the Lord. I have spoken. God secures a place, Israel, a person. We know this to be the Messiah, Jesus Christ, the son of David. And he does so with promises, covenantal language. Verse 25, I will make with them a covenant of peace. When you're a refugee in a foreign land and you have a crazy prophet named Ezekiel. Last week I had mentioned Isaiah went around three years without clothes. Ezekiel had to lay on his side. You might get the sides mixed up, but he had to lay on his, I think it's his left side, for 390 days. That's over a year. And then he had to flip over and lay on his right side for another 40 days as a prophetic symbol to the people of Israel. That is 430 days of laying on your side. I'm sure it was great for his health. But that's not the point. The point is that this guy, as a prophet to the refugees, had a hard time with his message. He seems to be angry when God gives him this message. And God says, don't be rebellious like the people of Israel are rebellious. God gives him a prophetic message. He doesn't talk for seven days. That's how long it apparently takes him to calm down. This man had a hard calling because the first 33 chapters of this prophetic work talk about the ugliness of the world and the judgment of God. Now, I, I preach messages every once in a while that are a little hard. Can you imagine having your ministry filled so that 75% of the sermons you preach are condemning people? They're bad, God will take care of them. They're bad too, God will take care of them. You know what? They're horrible. They're worse than those two. God's going to take care of them. At some point, do you think Ezekiel's like, really? Again? And finally, God gives him this message of hope. 
Israel's looking around. Everyone around them is being judged. They're being judged. And God says, but a day is coming. And he secures it with a promise because it's not coming very quickly. It's not coming as soon as they want. And so in those dark hours, in those hopeless moments, hold this firm. God has covenanted with David and with Israel. He is going to restore them to a place in which God himself dwells. And he's going to restore to them a person, the Messiah, through whom God will shepherd his people. God has covenanted. He's promised us. It cannot fail to happen. Trust God is the hope that Ezekiel gives them. God provides for his sheep a place, a person, and promise. But there's more than that. God protects the vulnerable. It's kind of blended in with God having pity on the hurting. If you, if you look in uh, chapter uh, 34 again with me in verse 16, he says, I will seek the lost, and I will bring back the strayed, and I will bind up the injured, and I will strengthen the weak, and the fat and the strong I will destroy. I will shepherd them or feed them with justice. I'm going to use the word with instead of in because in justice sounds like injustice. So just so we're clear audibly, he's feeding them with justice. He's shepherding them in or with justice. So here's the picture of God. Israel has been oppressed not merely by outside nations, but by themselves. That is, the wealthy, the powerful, those in positions of prominence and who hold sway have taken advantage of their prestige and power to oppress and hurt people around them. In fact, if you look down further in this text, look with me in verse 17. As for you, my flock, Scripture says, behold, I judge between the sheep and the sheep, between the rams and the male goats. So God is not talking about the kings now. He's talking about the flock and how the flock treats itself. Behold, I judge between you, he says. Verse 18, is it not enough for you to feed on the good pasture? You must tread down with your feet the rest of your pasture. To drink clear water, you must also muddy the rest of the water with your feet. And must my sheep eat what you have trodden with your feet and drink what you have muddied with your feet? Therefore, thus says the Lord God to them, behold, I myself will judge between the fat sheep and the lean sheep. Because you push with the side and shoulder and thrust at the weak with your horns till you have scattered them abroad. I will rescue my flock and they shall no longer be prey and I will judge between sheep and sheep. So part of the problem in Israel is not just their prey to Egypt and Babylon and Assyria. It's that internally they're selfish and they're injuring one another rather than considering each other brothers and fellow servants of the Lord, they're taking advantage in using and hurting and stealing and manipulating one another. We, we know this is, is true in almost any society, that those in power and those with resources have a different set of rules that they can play by. I mean, you see this especially in like the, the dictatorial realm of like South America or Africa. But there's two sets of rules going on. The haves and the have-nots play a different game. The have-nots are surviving by the, by the barest thread. And the wealthy are, are living on the backs of the poorest of the poor. And God says, I will judge. So, in this text then, when you come back to verse 16, God says, I will heal the hurting. This is so consistent 
with who our Savior is, isn't it? I mean, just, just reading Isaiah 53, by his wounds you are healed. When God heals the nation of Israel, when he brings you back to spiritual recovery, it's not as though that was painless for him. So, so you read Isaiah 53. It says, all we like sheep, did you catch that? Have gone astray. We've turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him our iniquities. When you go back to verse 5 of, of Isaiah, it's that he is the way in which we are healed. It is through him, through his wounding, through his strikes that we are brought healing. So we come to Isaiah, excuse me, Ezekiel 34, and the shepherding ministry of God is not without cost to the shepherd. That the shepherd is hurt to bring healing to his sheep. But I think this is helpful for us as we think through how gracious our God is that he does not offer us grace that cost him nothing. In fact, I would say good shepherds are willing to do what the sheep need. They're willing to care for the sheep, to shepherd the sheep, to give them good. This is what Jesus says in John 10, right? I am the good shepherd. What does a good shepherd do? He lays down his life for the sheep. And perhaps we look at God shepherding over us as though it's, it's something to be taken for granted, as in, well, that's what he should do. He is God. This is not true. God shepherds us out of his free grace. There is nothing in you that compels God to love you. God loves you because he's loving, not because you're lovable. We do not anchor our our, our security in us. But our security is anchored in the character of the shepherd who's unchanging. And so when the shepherd heals those sheep who've been abused by their fellow sheep, it's a tribute not to how beautiful the sheep are, but to how beautiful the shepherd is. How irrevocable, unbreakable his commitment to give grace is that he be willing to suffer in our place, that we might be healed. Psalm 72, he delivers the needy when he calls. The poor and him who has no helper, he has pity on the weak, on the needy. He saves the lives of the needy. From oppression and violence, he redeems their life, and precious is their blood in his sight. Our God is a rescuing, healing God. He protects those who are vulnerable, and he does that. I mean, just simply and fairly brutally, it says, the fat and the strong I will destroy. Well, how do they get fat and strong? They've consumed all the resources, and they didn't even have a right to most of them. It says the shoulder and horn, they push the other sheep out of the way, so it's a picture of a flock. And in a flock where the strong are aggressive, they get stronger, and the weak get weaker. Well, they're dumb animals. Why would God's people treat God's people in such a way? God says, I will not have it. I will destroy, right? The fat and the strong, I will destroy. How unlike their shepherd, 
who heals the sick by taking their place. That his people look nothing like him. They push the weak away from the place of healing and strength. Finally, the Lord promises justice. Look again at verse 16. The fat and the strong I will destroy, I will feed them with justice. I think if you were to look at other translations, you might see something like, I will shepherd them with justice. And of course, the point is that God is going to do what's right. And the Christian should find great comfort in this. Okay, so just, just to really clearly make plain why it's comforting, not terrifying. Because he's just said, the fat and the strong I will destroy. That might sound terrifying. But if you're God's people, the wrath of God has been fully dealt with, poured out, expunged in the work of Christ. Right? God pours out his wrath on Jesus Christ so that there is no more wrath left for you if you have Christ. If you don't have Christ, you should be terrified because justice means that there's a certain unavoidable penalty falling on all who are guilty before God's throne. All who are guilty. So Israel thinking they can presume on God like they do in John. We're like, hey, we're descendants of Abraham. We have blessings locked down. We can't be messed with because we're Israel. And Jesus is like, whoa, 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 whoa. That's not how this thing works. If you're like, if you're Abraham's children, be like him and believe like him. Be righteous like him. Follow God like him. And then you have the protections promised to Abraham. A passage like this that promises us justice is the hope of the victim and the terror of the predator. It's terrifying to know God protects his sheep when you've been a wolf. It's terrifying to know God hunts for you like a rabid wolf. He is going to put you down. But justice is the hope of God's people. This is what Jesus, who in 1 Peter was mentioned this morning in our earlier hour, that he entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. Because Jesus will be rewarded with a name that is above every name. He will be glorified, Philippians 2 says, so that every knee will bow, every tongue will confess, whether in heaven or on earth or below the earth. In other words, all of creation will bow and confess before the Lord of glory that Jesus is gloriously God's servant and worthy of worship. All of creation will. Jesus was hoping in that justice when he died as an innocent man. And so as people are called to suffer in this life, sometimes we're like, justice now. Like we want justice today when we are a victim. And God is promising, again, just look at the phrasing, I will feed them. That's a future. I will do this. So as you're in Babylon, you're a slave, you have to do this. You recall the stories in Daniel of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, which are not their names. It's Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael. 
Like, he's changed their names. They lost their identity. They lost their Hebraic names. They lost their country. They lost their king. They lost their culture. They lost everything. And then, in an act of absolute sheer audacity, Nebuchadnezzar says, and you must worship my idol. He is tearing everything out of their world. And you can imagine the prayer of these sweet men, God, bring justice. And God says, I will, but not yet. As far as we know, they died captives in Babylon. Daniel died in Babylon. And when we go to Revelation 5, the martyrs in heaven are crying out for justice still. But God is just. At the end of the ages and the accounts are settled, no one can say he's not. God is just. If you were to read back a few chapters, and I recommend that you do so, God warns those who have been righteous, who in fatigue and feeling like God has not kept his word, give up and begin acting wickedly. And he says, I will not hold you unaccountable. I will bring justice to you if you turn away from me. But he uses that same justice to plead to those who have yet to be just, yet to be righteous. He says, listen, if you're wicked and you turn and you pursue righteousness, I will have mercy and I will forgive. God's justice is such a sweetness for those of us who know that Jesus Christ has paid for all of our sins on Calvary. Because it means his justice for our guilt and our sins has been satisfied. And all that's left in his justice is reward for those who love him. This is why Hebrews 11 tells us that we must believe that God is a rewarder. It doesn't say God rewards. That is, his character is a rewarding character. So when we serve him, when we suffer for him, when as sheep we are called to be patient with sheep who bite, who push, who muddy the water, who eat up all the green grass, We know that he's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him, those who suffer for him, those who pursue him. God rewards because he's a rewarder in character. The hope of God's sheep is that he is just. As you conclude this chapter, verse 25, I will make a covenant. I'll banish the wild beasts from the land so they may dwell securely in the wilderness and sleep in the woods. And I will make them and the places all around my hill, that be the hill in Jerusalem where the temple sits, a blessing. And I will send it down the showers in their season, and there shall be showers of blessing. And the trees of the field shall yield fruit, and the earth shall yield its increase, and they shall be secure in their land, and they shall know that I am the Lord. When I break the bars of their yoke and deliver them from the hand of those who enslave them, They shall no more be prey to the nations, nor shall the beasts of the land devour them. They shall dwell securely, and none shall make them afraid. And I will provide for them renowned plantations, so that they shall no more be consumed with hunger in the land, no longer suffer reproach of the nations. And they shall know that I am the Lord their God with them, and that they, the house of Israel, are my people, declares the Lord. And you are my sheep human sheep of my pasture, and I am your God, declares the Lord God. Isn't that a sweet promise for Israel? To hold tight 
and slavery and bondage. Let me pull this together. This is really profound. Dads, you should be like God. I mean, we talk about being godly. We just mean be like God. So here's how God cares for his sheep. And just think through. I mean, you have it right there on that paper. If you have the outline, God pursues his lost sheep. And if you have children, pursue them. Pursue them to the Lord. Not just for your sakes. Be present with your children. Not just physically, but be there. Phones can be a time in which you are physically present and mentally absent. Be present with your children. Provide place and peace for your children. Pity them when they're hurting. Dads, I know we are raising a batch of children that we're concerned about their masculinity and their toughness and their resolve to work hard. But don't let that keep you from being a man who pities a hurting child. You know, sometimes you need to tell the little baby to toughen up. But sometimes there's real injury and real hurt in which you need to care and be sweet and be sympathetic. Erring on one side or the other is folly. I think maybe my grandpa's generation erred on the tough side. I would like to say the participation trophy has erred on the other. That culture that just gives away prizes for everything. But don't counter the culture by being a dad who cannot sympathize with a hurting child and comfort the hurt and point them to Christ. Protect the vulnerable children and make your home a place of justice. Dad, you can't do that and be passive. I went through and highlighted all the I wills, the verbs of this passage that God says I will do. There are 31. I will rescue my sheep. I will search for my sheep. I will seek out my sheep. I will rescue them. I will bring them out. I will bring them into. I will feed them. I will feed them. I myself will be their shepherd. I will make them to lie down. I will seek the lost. I will bring back the strayed. I will bind up the injured. I will strengthen the weak. I will destroy the strong. I will feed them with justice. I will judge between sheep and sheep. I myself will judge. I will judge. I will set over them a shepherd. I, the Lord, will be with them. I will be their God. I will make with them a covenant. I will send down showers of blessing. I will break their yoke. I will provide for them renowned plantations. Our God acts for his people. Dads, turn off the TV and act for your families. Serve your children. Love your wives. God is moving to rescue Israel. He is promising that he will be dynamically rescuing them. I hope you're acting, dads. I hope your days aren't filled with rest and selfishness, with TV shows, with social media. And I know many of you, you're not. You're good dads. But keep at it. Don't be discouraged. Stay active. Love your children and pursue them. The hero of this passage is not dads. The hero of this passage is the Lord Jesus Christ and God who appoints him as shepherd. So don't miss that. Our God acts. 
is to worship the Lord. He is gracious. He is a sweet shepherd. He is faithful to his, peace, uh, his people even when it doesn't seem like he's faithful. God is just. God cares. God gives grace to the humble. So you go to 1 Peter 5, and he says, shepherds in the church, shepherd like Christ, who is the chief shepherd. And then it leads him to say something like this, so all of you humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God because he cares for you. So cast your cares on him. God cares for you. So we look at a passage like this and we go to 1 Peter 5 and Christ is the chief shepherd or we end in, in Hebrews 13 with the great shepherd of our souls. These promises aren't merely to be taken as Israel. It's as though we get to go back and see how he shepherded Israel and he called upon them to trust in him, to know his goodness and to love him and to be faithful to him. And God is preaching not only to Israel but to us about who he is. Is he your shepherd? Have you trusted in him? Do you promise to follow him? God says, I know my sheep. I call them by name and they, what do his sheep do? They follow. Have you trusted the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior? Are you pursuing his will and following him in saving faith? If not, Trust in him. He's a good shepherd. I'm thankful that I am not a refugee in Babylon, modern-day Iraq. I'm thankful that I have the freedoms that God has provided through this country. I am thankful for air conditioning. I'm thankful that God has given in all of human history to this people the embarrassment of wealth beyond imagining in human history. What a kindness. Don't let that distract you from following your shepherd. We're talking about refugees who are the poorest of the poor and broken and needing healing. Don't be deceived. You need healing too. And don't let prosperity numb you to the desperate need you have to follow your shepherd, to feel his comforting leadership, and to walk with him in those fields of green, in those hills that he promises to one day restore and make new when his son sits on the throne. Is Jesus your shepherd? Do you walk with him? Do you love him? Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for your word. What a sweet grace to know that though we can't see you, we love you. And though we can't hear your words spoken by your mouth, we have them, and we can be reminded of them at a moment's notice if we just open up your scriptures. And so you shepherd our souls with your good word. In fact, you call us to taste and see your goodness by getting into the scriptures, which are good. Lord, I ask that you would shepherd your people, that you would lead us to green pastures, Lord, help us to trust you in your shepherding care. I ask for those that are in this room that may not know, that may not be your shepherds or are your sheep, that do not know you as shepherd, that you would save them and redeem them, that you would call them into your flock, that they might forever be redeemed and rescued by your healing hand. That through the forgiveness that Jesus Christ purchased on the cross, they might be forever saved. 
Father, for the dads in the room, for those who might be listening, I ask that you would strengthen their resolve to be like you, to care for the people that you've put under their leadership, to love them, to have pity upon them, to care for them, to not take advantage of them, but to lead them not for selfish desires, but for the care and the love that they can give. Lord, help our fathers to be godly like you. We ask that we also just recognize that you're worthy of worship because of your glorious character. And in a text like this, that we would pause before applying it to our hearts and that we might bless and praise your name for being our glorious shepherd. You are faithful. You are merciful. You are present with your people. You are kind to us. You bring our wandering hearts back to your good grace. Your words secure us and give us hope when the world doesn't. You remind us that it is better to follow after you than follow after the world. You are a sweet shepherd. Lord, you deserve glory. Your name is worth praising. You are the epitome of what defines good. So, Lord, I pray that your church would worship you with awe and wonder because of your glorious character as shepherd. In the name of Jesus, we ask that you might do these things. Amen.